Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Happy Labor Day, podcast listeners. Hope you've had an awesome summer. We're welcoming Jeff back. Jeff, welcome. How's it going? You look awfully tan. Just got back from the beach. Yeah, celebrating my parents' 50th wedding anniversary, which was great, except for uh, my brother and his three kids were there, and uh, they are a handful, to say the least. Yeah, I have seven nieces and nephews. I, I can sympathize. My brother just brought his out to California, and we did the whole... I said, one day at the amusement park is enough for me. And it's kind of, I said, I, I have a lot of respect for the listeners here who have birthed and raised children. It's, it's a lot. I don't know how you do it. I mean, they showed up with these hard plastic swords. My shins and knuckles are just, uh, it's just a, a sea of bruises. Well, you, well, you look tan. What, what else did you do in the South? Did you go shag, eat some barbecue, have some sweet tea, some bowl peanuts? A lot of barbecue. Bar- barbecue is the greatest. You just can't beat East North Carolina barbecue. What does that mean? Is that vinegar? Uh, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of these websites that do like Southern food. We should get delivered out here and do like an end of a summer Jeff sponsored Southern barbecue. I'd like that. Hey, did I see we got another bottle of tequila while I was gone? Yeah, but since you took the last one home, <laughs> I bought a bunch of limes, some triple sec. We're going to do margarita today, tomorrow, catching up with Patrick O'Shaughnessy on the podcast since it's been about a year. For clarification, that's his podcast, not ours. Yeah, but right? maybe we should record it and put it on ours too. <laughs> Listeners, if, if if you don't find it here, go to go to Patrick's. How is uh, how's your time in Colorado with the eclipse? You know, I found out like in investing, there's a lot of parallels. There's a big difference. We saw it. So we were in Colorado and we went to a brewery with my mom and newborn and it was 95% in Colorado. And one of the reasons we went to the brewery is because you couldn't find the glasses anywhere. And I bought them, of course, but then left them in LA. So we saw it at 95%. It got dimmer and it was cool. But apparently the difference between that and 100% is is literally night and day. We had a bunch of friends that were up in Jackson Hole. Sounded awesome. I was supposed to be up there. I know Wes, the Alpha Architect crew was there. Said it was pretty killer. So next time. Expecting to see some sort of major dimming and you know nothing. It didn't even seem like there's the slightest bit of darkness. It happens it like once a month, right? So it's just a you know normal event. I'll, I'll catch it next month. <laughs> I think there's one coming up like that's in Texas and within the next 10 years. So but, but that goes back to, if you remember Rob Arnott's podcast, which if you guys haven't listened to, is, is one of the best, certainly in the first year. Rob's beautiful, useful, magical, which was a question we asked all the guests in year one, was to go watch the eclipse. Mm-hmm. We'll have to ping him next time and say, where, where'd you watch it? Oh, I feel like he was, up, he was going to Oregon or something. I, yeah, I want to say Portland. But we'll have to get him back on and see where he went. You got some fun travel coming up. Where are you off to? A bit. You know, I've been been more homebound with the newborn, but I'm going to Iceland with my brother for a week. Do a little fishing. Uh, never been. Excited. Uh, it's a lot cheaper than it was post-crisis as the currencies come down, but it's still, I think, really expensive. So any Icelandic listeners, come say hello. Then have about five work events. So in October, 
uh, will be in Lake Tahoe and Reno and also in LA. In November, we'll be in Orlando, San Diego, New York, and Amsterdam. So if you're in any of those places, shoot me an email. Uh, I'd love to say hello. And then in early 2018, these, these are all work talks, by the way. Most of them public speeches. You might have to pay for some. I feel like you're going to need a lot of help in Amsterdam. I should probably come and... Uh, well, and then in well, early 2018 is Nicaragua. There so, too. So, I don't know. You're going you're gonna to have to take your picks. I think, Jeff, you're probably most needed in Orlando. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that seems God. more your speed. Uh, you know, I used to live in we'll Florida. Go to Universal That's... City, Universal Studios. <laughs> so anyway, if you're listening and you're not in any of those events, but in those towns, shoot me an email, grab lunch, grab beer, coffee, say hi. Any early thoughts on when you're going to open up the office hours for uh, people calling in? Yeah, so that was a lot of fun. It was really a lot of fun. It was a little overwhelming because I, I just booked too many. We'll, we'll do it once a quarter and we'll just do it a little more in moderation. So like anything, it makes perfect sense to do it just a little more spread out but yeah we'll do it once a quarter so once october rolls around maybe okay once i'm back from from iceland cool all right well today i thought we would hop into some uh listener questions we haven't done those in a while but actually before we hop in wanted to bring up the uh, last podcast with uh, jason calacanis i thought that was a great one and i have one, one had... of our longest ever yeah. it was like an hour and a half yeah. if not longest ever you and i were uh, our schedules were sort of misaligned so right after we recorded that you took off and then i took off so i haven't had much of a chance to download with you on it curious just your overall thoughts as it relates to your own experiences with the uh, angel investments you've done and if it gave you any sort of new perspectives on it and if you'll be doing anything new in uh in your own accounts the concept of angel investing we talked about it, and if you haven't listened to that podcast please go listen to it it's really really interesting you know there's a few benefits to that world that i think are unique you know one is that like smaller micro caps there's much less information you know it's much harder to find information about private companies particularly ones that are just starting up it's like selecting hedge funds, you know, it, it helps to have domain expertise. So be familiar with that scene and the founders, what have they done before? Are they new? What's, you know, what's worked, what hasn't? Obviously to have a little understanding of the terms of the deals, you know, all that's just kind of basic, but, but some of the huge benefits being, you know, we mentioned to Jason, talk about it uh, in his, in his next version of the book that he did mention it. There's huge tax benefits, for investing in these angel companies that if you hold them for five years, I think it's up to 10 million or a certain amount is exempt from tax. So really monster tax benefit. So even if you could just match the S&P in your angel investments would be a big tax benefit. And then the behavioral one, which is because it's private, you can't sell. So the cool thing about these investments is they're not quoted. So here, here's the difference. Let's say you do 50 angel investments, $1,000 each, whatever. Or you put money into a Robinhood account, which is free trading, and you buy 50 stocks. Those 50 stocks you can look up every day. If the market crashes, if you know the person gets elected, you don't want to get elected, or there's a catastrophic flood, you know, all these geopolitical events, Russia invades someone, you know, whatever it may be. They say the active investors on Robinhood check their account 10 times per day versus a private angel investor, like you can't check it. Like you don't even know what the valuation is until someone else does around, they get acquired or IPO. And, you know, if they do updates. So there's a lot of, I've, I've kind of come around on a lot of people decry private investing for the liquidity, but it's actually for individuals, I think actually a big benefit now, but steep learning curve. I, you know, I, I think a lot of his advice, take it slow, 
commit to a long period, you know, start with small amounts you can afford to lose while you get educated, follow like a lot of the 13F stuff we talk about, follow the top investors. That's an easy way to get started. So it's been a lot of fun. You know, I'll, I'll certainly report back on results of it and how it's going in the coming years. I mean, for me, it's been a, I've been doing it for three or four years now. Wonderful learning curve out of the, I think, 25 that I've done. The very, the very first and only one has had the exit positive. So I'm batting a hundred or a thousand, you know, so it's, it's, it's been interesting. Were you vetting them individually yourself or were you investing along with the syndicate that uh, you really it's, didn't know what you were doing? Almost all those are syndicate or someone else, you know, has, has brought it to me. To what degree were you familiar and in what depth with the investments that you were putting money into? So some, I do, I do a cursory kind of inquiry into all of them, of course, because there, there's some businesses that I would just never invest in. There's some that I gravitate towards. Like, I think we talked in the podcast, I'd love the subscription boxes, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> anything that has a product and has revenue that's growing like that, that's just a no brainer to me. And some of them just make so much sense. But a lot of the ones, and, and Jason echoed this, he says, you know, if it, if it doesn't have a product or any traction, like it's just a promise that seems to me to be such a high percent, just uncertainty. I don't know why I would ever do that. You know, you could wait. And the biggest problem I have is, and one of the reasons I'm a quant is, you know, at my core, I'm an optimist. So everything sounds like a yes to me. Where, where in that world, you should, you need to start. I, who was talking about this? Morgan Housel or somebody was talking about this where they said, you need to start at no and then, then get to a yes. But I, I've come up with some parameters. I said, look, I'm going to, you know, allocate a few percentage a year and committing to 10 years of it because in the next cycle down, if we ever have one, you know, certainly valuations will come down, you know, it, it gets more favorable for the investor. There's different companies. So just like a Yale would at their private equity, you know, they, they do rolling vintages. So they're putting new money to work every year rather than, you know, you're just buying and forgetting about it. So we'll continue to report back. I don't know how Maybe we can end up doing some sort of research. Like I, I really would love to do a research boutique focused on this space. So we'll have to spin it out and hire four or five people to do it. But what kind of a fun dream job for young people, you know, just to track these deals, do deep dive research. I'm curious. I'm about to throw us in a completely random direction based upon something you just said. And I'm kind of curious to see where it goes. We, we might cut this off here in a second, but the outsiders, Thorndike, you know, capital allocation. For listeners out there, the general idea is some of the CEOs who have done the best have been really skilled at capital allocation, knowing when to buy back stock versus when to use excess money to pay dividends versus when to pay down debt, yada, yada, yada. So, Mev, to what extent have you ever considered yourself as more of a capital allocator in your own personal finances? You were just mentioning about throwing more money towards angel investments if the cycle turns. But if the cycle turns, chances are that uh, you know publicly traded companies, obviously, the stock market will be down as well. So to what extent do you think about your own personal monies and how do you allocate between the various opportunities available to you, public markets, private markets, paying down whatever debt might be in your own life, that sort of thing? Is it I, a, I pay is a, a lot plan? of dividends. I pay a lot of dividends, which is buying our unemployed actor friends, happy hours in LA. I uh, <laughs> thought you were going to mention your life. <laughs> inter- entertainment umbrella. She doesn't listen to the show, I don't think. So we can <laughs> we can start ripping on Jackie too. I, I've been super transparent with my portfolio the past five years. We published it on the blog. And the way I think about it, you know, for 
new listeners, the kind of the summary and, and the way that it is, is like, look, I don't know what the percent number is, but let's call it somewhere between 70 and 99% of my net worth is in Cambria, right? And, and we also talk a lot about this. Say, look, if you want to build huge exponential wealth, you either need to start a company, you need to invest in early stage companies or just a, a, a company or stock or an investment that has potential to be a, you know, a 10, 100,000 bagger. Or you need to have equity, some sort of equity ownership in a company that can go exponential. Most of the asset allocation stuff we've talked about for a long time, you know, and in, in the Global Asset Allocation book, which by the way, we've re-upped that at freebook.mevfavor.com. You can download that. We just did a poll, by the way, and, and that was our most requested second edition. So we may have to update that that book. Most asset allocation strategies are going to get you 5% real per year. Okay, great. 5% real per year will make you incredibly wealthy over 40 years. It won't make you incredibly wealthy over 5, 10, 20, if that's your goal. So we've said before, when you're thinking about, you know, kind of big ways to make money, whether it's start a business, hold the keys, meaning a lot of people have done it through real estate, which is kind of like owning a business. You know, you own real estate and rent it out. What was fascinating is what you just mentioned not too long ago about how the uh, white, some recent white paper pointed out that a rental real estate was the best performing asset class. Well, because we, we'd said historically, housing is not a great investment, but that's because you're living in the house and using it. But if you were to buy a house and rent it, you know, you're getting that income. Same as if you bought farmland and did nothing with it, you'll probably keep up with inflation. But if you farm the farmland, same as renting a rental property, you know, you'll get that income. And there's definitely a delicate balance. You know, a lot a lot of that works out to where it's in, you know, a lot of the big asset classes are in balance, you know, for their volatility and holding periods. But okay, so so going back to your original question, we've already gone off on a tangent on the tangent. You know, so most of my net worth is in Cambria. So, you know, we did a fun blog post which was along the lines of Given that, and, and you know, a couple other, I mean, Idea Farm, a couple other private companies, say given that, you could theoretically, like you could do a debate with pro and con where someone could say, all right, Meb, given that most of your wealth is in this company and you're young, you could have a portfolio that's extremely risky, quote, risky, right? Because the outcome is going to be determined by this, so you may as well be really risky with this. Or you can make the argument, well, because your outcome is going to be determined by this, there's no reason to take any risk with that. And like, I, I think both of those could be totally acceptable for different type of people. So anyway, my, my, my kind of takeaway is like after you take out Cambria and Idea Farm and the $68 we make a year on selling books, if that, probably not that, not even that much. Then, you know, the, the public portfolios, it's Trinity. I think I'm like a Trinity three or four. And everything just goes into that. Then, I, you know, I announced when the tail risk strategy ETF came out that I put 10% into that and may even put more. I mean, to me, that's, a, that's at this point in the cycle, it's a great sort of cash parking bond substitute. And if and when I think the market rolls over to its, you know, into a downtrend, which may not happen for 10 more years, who knows, that, that could be an additional re-up on that. You know, that to me, that's that's kind of a cash bond substitute at this point. And then, oh, sorry, I, I neglected um, farmland is is probably as large, if not larger than my public equity portfolio. So that's obviously inherited and has sentimental value. It's kind of like a bond. The government has made it so that farmland is kind of subsidized to the point where it's okay investment, but not 
you know, not fantastic with, with wheat prices where they are. If wheat prices quadruple, it's a different story. Let me jump in right now because uh, you just touched on something that's a good segue into some of our listener questions. So you mentioned how tail might be a proxy for cash right now. So we have two questions that are somewhat similar. Let me read them and we'll launch into your thoughts. First is, what's the best way for a high net worth individual to invest in bonds? Because the high taxes and very low default rates, munis are a preferred method. What are your thoughts? And related to that question, where would you put safe long-term capital right now? Long-term bonds, short-term? Okay, we, we just, we just, I think you just asked like six questions in one. So There's a fair amount in there. I think the original question was like angel investing, then your personal portfolio, and then somehow you started the question with tail, then went into bonds. So, okay, we'll talk about a few different things. So going back to the public market portfolios, I think you should be spending zero time on your public market portfolio. And we did a post on this called like the best way to add yield your portfolio is to to stop spending any time on it whatsoever. And it's something like unless you have like 20 million or more, the time you spend on the portfolio, unless it's fun and you enjoy history and being interested in investments, that's fine. But if you actually just care about the return on investment, you should basically spend zero time on your portfolio and go spend your time doing other stuff, whether it's investing in yourself, getting more education, trying to get a better job, working harder or at least focusing on investments where there's potential to add serious value. But the public market portfolio, if you look at all the asset allocation portfolios in the book, they all did like 5 6% per year. The spread was 1% total over the entire period. So why would you be mucking around with those allocations? Just set it, forget it, and move on. Now, if you're then talking about some of the other stuff you're talking about, so like, you know, if you're talking about bonds, you know, bonds play a role in that portfolio. You say bonds, bonds means a lot of things. So... U.S. government bonds are totally different from corporate bonds, which are totally different from muni bonds, which are totally different from, you know, even if you look at government bonds, zero coupon bonds, 30-year bonds are totally different than one-year T-bills. You know, so there's a very wide spectrum. I mean, for the most part, short-term government bonds are fine. Cash substitutes. We mentioned CDs or Max My Interest was a really cool website that, that maxes out your savings account. So you get, you know, one and a half percent or whatever it is that is protected up to the the 250 grand limits. So safe money is you don't do anything. Now, if you say, look, I, I actually am super worried about inflation, then you do a diversified portfolio. You could have more in bonds than, than the minimum global market portfolio, but that'll kind of get you to that real positive returns, but it's not risk-free. What cash substitute right now do you think is going to be the best job of matching inflation and giving you some protection for the people who are kind of saying, I want some money on the sidelines right now. I don't want to go into a tail strategy. I just want to sort of sit and watch, but I don't want to get eroded too badly. I mean, T-bills historically keep up with inflation. So, I mean, bank account that pays you one and a half percent is going to come pretty close to keeping up with inflation. Inflation is kind of in that 2% ballpark. I mean, it's it's not that big of a difference. And so, you know, if you want a super low vol portfolio, you could have 60% in that cash and then 40% in the global market portfolio. Like the, the, the global market portfolio historically has what drawdowns, most of the asset allocation portfolios will have a 25%, 30% drawdown at some point. Really aggressive ones would have had, you know, 50% plus in 08. And then if you go back far enough, it's probably two thirds. So the more you add cash to that, the more kind of buffer that that will have. And I have no problem with cash. I also have no problem. Like if you want to do 80% of your portfolio in cash and 20% in angel investing, like that's reasonable to me. If you want to put 
hundred percent of your portfolio in dividend aristocrats. Like I don't care. There's ways that I do it and ways that I think are, are better, but if you find what works with you, I'm cool with that. So one more thought on bonds. So a lot of people get really worked up about, for example, government bonds in, in say Europe or where there's super low yield, Switzerland and Japan, you know, the, the foreign government bonds yielding like half percent, some of which were negative and people pull their hair out and say, how is this possible in this world? I think there's two things that commenters neglect. One is it's, yes, I would not invest in those and in general. And two is that if you're going to invest in foreign bonds, you know, we did a paper that says sovereign high yield bonds makes more sense than sovereign low yield bonds. That's just value. That's carry. There is a scenario though, when low yield bonds are a great asset class. And from a, say, US perspective, it's if the dollar is overvalued and the, those bonds, those currencies appreciate versus the dollar. And also it's a really big deflationary environment where interest rates go even lower. But in general, yes, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to be buying 50 bips bonds when you could get one and a half in a bank account here. Back to the question from Twitter here. If you had to short one and only one market right now, what would it be and why? I love the Twitter questions because they have no context, right? It's like, okay, well, what are my assumptions? Do I have a diversified portfolio? Am I sitting 100% in cash? Or is it just like gun to your head? You have to pick something to go down. That's what I'm saying. Betting. The last part? I would think it's basically a, a proxy for what do you think is too richly overvalued that's got to turn right now? I mean, I think a safe bet is always shorting a basket of overvalued on a value composite basis US stocks right now. That's one. But putting that into implementation is hard because you know you have to pay to borrow those stocks, You know whether where, where most individuals, it's that may be really expensive depending on your brokerage. You may not get a borrow at all. If I had to short one thing and the borrow rate wasn't crazy, it's the close-in Bitcoin fund that trades at a 100% premium to the price of Bitcoin. Like it states straight up on, like you know what the fund is valued at, but because it's the only way for people to publicly trade Bitcoin, it trades at a 100% premium. That is a no brain or short. Now, like if you owned a bunch of Bitcoin, why would you not short that? And the answer is probably because there's no borrow. Like I don't know that you could probably get much of a borrow anywhere. I haven't looked into it, but it's it. I cannot fathom why you wouldn't. I also can't fathom why that trust wouldn't issue a ton more shares while they're trading at 100% premium. But that happens in the closed-in fund world. And one of the beauties of ETFs is they trade pretty much always right around net asset value because of the creation redemption structure. Closed-in funds don't. And so closed-in funds, I mean, this can actually be an opportunity too, is you know often will trade plus minus 20% to their net asset value. When asset classes go out of favor, and you could probably look it up right now, there used to be a great website, probably still is, called Closed-in Fund Connect. And I think it's CEF Connect. And someone bought them, maybe Nuveen. But there's a bunch of funds on there. You can sort them by discount. Some of them are leveraged. So you got to pay a little attention. So you can go in and look for funds that are trading at 10, 20% discounts. Now, the problem with just people would say, well, Matt, why wouldn't you just buy those? Well, the problem is most of those funds charge like a percent and a half. So yes, you may get it at a discount, but if you're waiting for the discount to realize it, it may be worthless if you hold it five, 10 years and you're paying what would be costing an ETF 50 bips, right? Also, in some of those situations, they trade at a uh, discounted premium sort of in perpetuity. So you want the ones that kind of oscillate. I mean, my favorite example of, of markets not being rational 
is the Cuba fund. And we've talked about this on the podcast before. Tickers Cuba doesn't own Cuban stocks. It owns stocks that the manager thinks has exposure to Cuba, but you know, will trade at plus minus 50 all the time to the net asset value. And so some of the country ones will will oscillate and some, like you said, are just forever. And, and by the way, it's, it's kind of like the, the closing fund structure, it's, it's kind of amazing it still exists because the people that invest in the IPO immediately get hit with essentially like an 8% load. So if you're a broker and you put someone in to this closing fund IPOing, I don't know how like I don't know how that passes fiduciary rule because you could wait one day and get it 8% cheaper. So it's this really like I mean it's 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 the best possible structure in the world for money managers because it's pent up capital forever. You launch a $200 million fund charging 2%, sweet. You just got a fund that there's the money doesn't go away. Like the money can trade hands on secondary, but that $200 million fund is there essentially forever. So huge cash flow generator, which is obviously why the structure exists, but it's not for the end investor. And I don't want to go as far as to say if my money manager put me into a closed-in fund at IPO, I would fire them, but I would be pretty darn close. Because you're, you're, I mean, it's the same thing as going into mutual funds with these huge loads. Like maybe in the 90s or 80s or 70s or 60s, like that, that was the only choice to get into these. But you live in a world of opportunity where you don't have to pay these huge loads. So I think closing funds are great from a tradable perspective. So if I had to short one thing, it would probably be that fund. You could do a lot, all sorts of pair trades with other things in that to kind of shrink that premium. What was the first thing I said I would? Oh yeah, basket of expensive U.S. stocks. And on that note, a basket of expensive U.S. stocks. I'm curious how you see that trade off because on one hand you just said that you would short that. On the other hand, you know I've heard you talk about the various four quadrants of the U.S. market: cheap and getting cheaper. Well, basically expensive but well valued, cheap, uh, well valued, yada yada yada. So here we are right now. I mean, I would I would love to just say I'd buy. I mean, I have ten percent of my net worth in a short, which is long puts on the U.S. stock market partnered with long term bonds. Right? That's that's the fund we own, but. I mean, if I could say a system, like I would love to short that U.S. stock basket when stocks go below their long-term moving average. Like that's a great short. Now, I would love to build an entire portfolio that will go short markets when they go their, below their long-term moving average. Well, you just described managed futures, which we also allocate to. So, but I think the question was really just, hey, Meb, subjectively, if you could short something, what would it be? Yeah, so you hate Bitcoin. <laughs> Um, are we really going to go there? Because nope, if you nope, have any not. more we're questions, not. Not. I could go on for five hours. I, Dude, I just got, within the past week, almost every single person that shouldn't be asking me about investing in cryptocurrencies has. And that is a great sign. I mean, we're talking doctors, people, people texting me that I haven't heard from in four years. And I, looking at the text thread, the last text thread was like 2014 asking about something other, just insane thing. And, and they're, talk, they're all talking about cryptocurrencies. I mean, Floyd Mayweather just just promoted two before his fight. It's just, don't even get me started. Have you gone to the website, what if Bitcoin? Ridiculous. <laughs> but so the funny thing about, let's talk about, you know, as we talked about asymmetric payouts, I mean, look, Bitcoin, and I don't want to sound like a bitter, I have, I've never had any investment in crypto. I've been a pleasant happy cheerleader for crypto. I think it's great. I would love to see it become ubiquitous. I emailed a fellow that I had breakfast with in Mexico City a few years ago, 
who owns like majority of the world Bitcoin ATMs. <laughs> I emailed him again. I said, hey, you still doing this? Because I saw a chart somewhere on the online about all the Bitcoin ATMs, which, which is like the really smart way to go about it, which is, you know, the picks and shovels, right? The gold rush. The, so, I, but look, I've been cheering for cryptocurrencies, but thinking about these, you know, huge 10, 100 bagger, and in the case of Bitcoin, depending on how far you go back, 1,000 or 10,000 bagger, and all the FOMO that people have about Bitcoin, well, like that happens all the time in stocks too. You know, for a stock, so, so for the angel investing, if you got in at a million or 10 million, then it goes to a billion, that's a hundred or a thousand bagger. And then if it goes to 10 billion or Bitcoin would be right around the market cap of like 70 million. So we said on Twitter the other day that it's around a, a Starbucks or an Amex. So yeah, that's pretty awesome. I mean, that's essentially what Uber's done. So like, like Jason did, he invested in Uber. It went up all that way. People also forget how hard it is to hold something like that. So if you look at all these kind of 10, 100, 1,000, 10,000 baggers, is that, you know, they go through gut-wrenching drawdowns. Yeah, it's been brutal. If you look at Bitcoin, it's been brutal. Same thing for Amazon. I mean, Amazon, we wrote a paper on this that should be out by the time this podcast comes out on, on tail risk hedging. You know, Amazon has had these multiple 50, I think it even had like a 95% drawdown. You know, and so like, and if you would say you invested a hundred grand and went to a million, then 10 million, then your 10 million went down to a hundred grand again, or 500 grand. Could you sit through that? I don't, I don't, you know, that's really hard. So a lot of these theoretical charts that show, you know, the performance is don't, don't, don't include the behavioral aspect. Anyway, you're seeing more and more speculative behavior. And I think the, the question that everyone should ask themselves, say, let's say they're convinced they're going to invest in cryptocurrencies or whatever. I said, all right, someone out, tell me this about the other day. I said, okay, what's your plan? They're like, well, I think I'm just going to buy some and, and see how it goes. And, and the buying is the easy part. Like you need to come up with either a system or a concept on how to sell it. So that's not an approach because what's going to happen, it'll go down 50% and you'll sell it and you just lost half. So done. You could say, hey, look, I'm going to buy it and I'm going to hold it for 10 years. And that's my, I will literally not look at it for 10 years. I will not touch it, whatever. Or I'm going to buy the top 10 cryptocurrencies and I'm going to rebalance that once a year. That's essentially market cap, you know, equal weighting, same as stocks you would. That's totally reasonable. I would love to see someone, all right, listeners, here's, here's a challenge for you. If you can go get the original turtle rules, so the trend following rules published, I think Covell has done it, or there's some PDFs floating around. Very simple trend following methodology. And you apply it to, say, the top 10 cryptocurrencies each year for the past four years and build a portfolio of it long flat. I don't think you would want to go long short, although I guess you could. Would love to see that simulation. It'd be a great article. I, 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 that is a totally reasonable approach going forward. It'd be a monster, I would think. But again, you know, I, I don't know how easy it is to trade cryptocurrencies. A lot of these wallets charge like a couple percent per trade, hmm. just getting in and out. So you have a round trip of 5%. Anyway, so look, I, I'm, I'm happily cheering for it. I don't have any FOMO about it. I'm sorry. We just derailed the whole podcast. Are you ready to move on to another question? Sure. And instead of instead of bottles of tequila, you guys can send Jeff and I send bitcoins. <laughs> there was there, I was I was looking at an article today. It's, it's like the ten most ridiculous cryptocurrencies, and two or three of them were meant to be jokes. Like they were like it was literally like a joke. And one of them has a market cap of like two hundred million dollars now. You know, it just 
But, but but again, look, I say this with a smirk because you look at the equity space and look at half these companies that are in Utah and Vancouver that, I mean, my God, mining and biotech and internet in the late 90s. I actually, this might be a good time to read this. I printed out, this is from Twitter, that it was the interview with Scott McNeely. He used to run Sun Micro back in the day and they sold it to Oracle in 2002. And this journalist says... Sun stock hit a high of 64 bucks. Did you think what tech stocks were doing two years ago was too good to be true? And he talks about his wife for a minute, but he says, look, two years ago, we were selling at 10 times revenue when we were at 64 bucks. At 10 times revenue, to give the investor a 10-year payback, I have to pay you 100% of revenue for 10 straight years in dividends. That assumes I can get that by my shareholders. That assumes I have zero cost of goods sold, which is very hard for a computer company. That assumes zero expenses, which is really hard with 39,000 employees. That assumes I pay no taxes, which is also very hard. And that assumes you pay no taxes on your dividends, which is kind of illegal. And that assumes with zero R&D for the next 10 years, I can maintain the current revenue run rate. Now, having done that, would any of you like to buy my stock at $64? Do you realize how ridiculous those basic assumptions are? You don't need any transparency. You don't need any footnotes. What were you thinking? So I think with a lot of investments... You know, you start to do the math or, or you talk about some of the the cryptos or whatever it was with people. And in many cases, they, they just don't check the common sense box. Where do you see the biggest parallels to that uh, quote right there and where we are today? Every, everything I get in my inbox from people and friends and seeing the media about like these ICOs, initial coin offerings. I mean, some of the most nonsensical stuff one person sent me an offer. I, I, these are unsolicited, by the way. I, please do not send me any ICOs listeners. You know, sent me an offer and really had nothing to do with the business. And it was all had to do with the potential price increase. And, it, you know, it's just, it's a lot of speculative behavior. Go read Extraordinary Property Delusions. That'll give you a lot of perspective. So, I, anyway. All right, moving on. All right, another question here from a listener. I've read how institutions build portfolios with a low sharp and leverage up to a specified risk level. How should an individual investor look at using a leverage-based approach to help maximize returns, or should they at all? But just backing up here, we haven't really talked a whole lot about using leverage within a personal portfolio. Why don't you just give some overall contextual information on you know the, the pros and cons, and, uh, and then launch into your answer. First of all, the, the person that asked the question, I think, misstated it is that institutions try to maximize their sharp ratio and then leverage it. <laughs> you don't want a small sharp ratio because that's return per unit risk. The formula is literally return minus risk-free rate divided by volatility. So you want a high sharp ratio. But that goes way back to Sharp and Markowitz and everyone that was doing the capital market line. This is like investing 101 in, in college where you have the risk versus return. You have the, all the asset classes as a shotgun blast. You have the curve that kind of shows the optimal amount per unit of volatility. And then you have the line that's tangential to that that shows you what would happen if you de-risk the portfolio. I mean, let's say the global market portfolio was the optimal sharp. All right. So whatever that allocation is. And then you start adding 10, 20, 30, 40% cash you know, that'll take you down the line. Or you start borrowing money or leveraging it using derivatives, same thing. And that starts to take you to 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60% leverage. Okay. There's nothing inherently wrong with, with leverage. It's, it simply is what it is. The problem is that most asset classes are volatile enough 
and it just exasperates the exasperates the I can't talk exacerbates exacerbates uh, that I almost got a little R rated. It makes the makes the behavior worse. You know, people can't handle the volatility already. When, if you can't handle twenty standard deviation of stocks, what makes you can handle 30, 40, 50? So people, the old Chinese expression, fish see the bait, but not the hook. So, but there's nothing wrong with it. And so that underlies a lot of the basics of, for example, risk parity thesis, which is some of the earliest things we were talking about in the blog a decade ago is kind of the Bridgewater is talking about it. A lot of the quant shops do it where if you get a little zen about it and say, okay, well, all asset classes different correlations, but but in general, they have fairly similar sharp ratios. And an efficient market, mostly efficient market, will push the opportunities to have fairly similar sharp ratios because if one market gets too attractive, then people want to invest in it and push it back down to you know a reasonable. And if it gets on the flip side too dear, people will, will sell it. So in general, it's fairly efficient. And so most asset classes have that sharp ratio 0.2, 0.3. Over time, I imagine if you look at the S&P since the global financial crisis, probably got a sharp ratio of like 1.4. has gone straight up, low volatility. But over time, it's 0.2, Diversified portfolio, you get up around 0. 0.4, 0. 0.5, 0. 0.6. Anyway, but the thesis was when you think about leverage, there's no reason to necessarily accept an asset class at the leverage and volatility that it's prepackaged at for you. And here's an example, S&P 500. Almost all the companies in the S&P 500, the stocks, have debt. So they are already leveraged. So you could say, all right, well, I'm going to pair the S&P with 10, 20, 30% cash to take it down to, instead of a volatility of 17, take it down to a volatility of 10, similar to 10-year government bonds. So then if they have the exact same volatility, the returns are probably similar, but, but not necessarily. So then it becomes a question mainly of correlation. And so you can build a portfolio, and this is the, the basics of risk parity, is you build a portfolio of highly uncorrelated assets and as many as you can get. Unfortunately, there's not that many betas out there. Stocks, bonds, real estate's kind of a mix of the two, certainly commodities. Uh, if you have the ability to, others like cat bonds, farmland, et cetera, put them all together and target a certain level of volatility. Or certain, that's the way that most people do it. So say you target 10 ball or 15 ball or 20 ball. It's really easy to do. And then you simply can lever up or lever down that portfolio to whatever you desire. The biggest critics of risk parity are that kind of by, by default, it means you invest, you invest less in the more volatile stuff, which historically has been stocks and REITs and even commodities, but mainly stocks. And you invest more in what's historically been low vol, which is bonds, particularly U.S. government bonds. And the critics say, well, particularly right now, after a 30-year bull market in bonds, that may not be the best idea. But it's just another asset allocation strategy. And so we, had, we featured a couple of these in the book. And so typically they're run, if you look at a typical risk parity fund, and there's a, a, probably a dozen of these, they target maybe 130, 150% total exposure. So they'll invest like 70% in bonds or 60% in bonds and the rest in other, and then they'll leverage it one and a half times. So you could actually theoretically have that portfolio and leverage it one and a half times and it's less risky than stocks, right? Because it's diversified 
and theoretically a lot of the non-correlations balance out. The problem with that, I think 08 was was tough for a lot of these kind of buy and hold funds is a lot of the correlations they expected to be consistent weren't. Now, if you're a student of markets, you shouldn't have expected that. You went back to the 30s and other times when kind of everything went down in a deflationary sort of bear market. But I'm totally fine with risk parity allocation. And in some of the risk parity-esque allocations in the book, you could argue permanent portfolio is kind of risk parity-esque. There's a couple more in the book that that are similar to that are some of the most robust across decades. But but they also tend to be asset class agnostic. So you may see stuff in there that's atypical like gold. Well, you're a trend follower at heart. What is it about trend following that you find more attractive than risk parity? Trend following is the assumption that at some point you're going to sell. So risk parity is still another buy and hold allocation. And that allocation could go down 99% or 100. And trend following at least at least you're trying. It may not be better. It may not work. And I could come up with a lot of environments where trend following does very poorly. Personality speaking, I think trend following fits me because I have a hard time sitting through an asset when it's having that large of a drawdown, particularly the the famous assets, US stocks or just stocks in general. All right. Another question here. Your 13F strategy, we've talked about it in past podcasts where you basically track a famous money manager and you can look at what they're investing in and U.S. stocks and their 13Fs. Uh, right now, if you had to follow one famous money manager with their 13Fs, who would it be and why? By the way, I didn't know this. I think a reader sent this in. Maverick, which is a pretty famous multi-billion dollar, if not 10 or $20 billion long short hedge fund. Lee Ainsley runs it. Fellow Wahoo. They have a 13F tracking fund that trades in Europe. I didn't know that. It doesn't exactly say 13F, but it says tracking the stock picks of other managers it in trades, our circle. You said in Europe? I think it's in Europe. or oh, no, 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 no. It's in Australia. Anyway, that was just interesting to note because they're one of the ones we, we look at in the book. If I had to pick one, you know, I, I've hanging on the wall here is the only article I've ever published in Forbes print. August 2010, seven years ago, but I talked about Baupost. And it was actually funny because I remember getting super heckled. There's so much misunderstanding going on with 13Fs. 99.9% of the people have never looked at the historical data. So it's like, you can't follow a manager. They bought these 10 years. You know, like they're just, it's the most non, it makes Cape look like a boring debate. Like these people are so uninformed. It's just, it drives me nuts. So that's originally why we, eventually wrote the Invest with the House book, which is one of my favorite books. It, it's, it's up there as one of the favorite books we've written. But I feel like people have kind of lost interest in that world the last few years. I don't know why, because it's just a goldmine of ideas. So if I had to pick one, it, it, it's always, I got a special part in my heart for Baupost for some reason, because that was the subject of this article. And, and so I got all these hecklers in the comments. And within the first month or two, Something like two of the stocks I mentioned in the article got bought out for like 50% premiums. So this is like immediately went up like a huge amount. Anyway, of course, no one checks back in on the anonymous heckling comments they make on on the internet months later. Did you follow Balpest with your own money at all? I used to. I, that used to be my whole IRA before I moved on to automating it and moving on. But I don't see anything wrong with Buffett's portfolio. You know, people... It's underperformed for like the last decade. So it's probably a great time to be getting interested in the Berkshire portfolio. 
there's a lot of those guys that that are you know Appaloosa has, has certainly been the gunslinger, the one that's had the best returns, I think. But there's some great personalities in that book. I would, that was either the second or third most requested second edition update. That would be pretty easy to update, actually. And we used to do a yearly piece back when I wrote Ivy Portfolio. 2007, we listed a bunch of funds. And those funds used to beat the S&P by, it was like 4% a year for a few years. And I just, I'd stopped updating it just because it was too, too much work. Uh, and eventually, just, I was like, I got to write the book. But I think there's a lot of interesting insight there. Let's do one more and then call it a day this time. Okay. All right. There's a question about hedge fund replication strategies. Can it add real value? So why don't you describe for us generally, you know, what the average hedge fund strategy or preferred asset class is, then tell us what these replication strategies are and then, you know, whether they work. That means three different things. So the one that we just talked about would be called holdings based. So you're literally replicating what they own. So looking through, and, and that's, you either use the public disclosures for 13Fs for equities or, and, and by the way, read the book because there's so many bad ways to do 13F replication and so many bad ways that some of the biggest shops out there do it. Goldman's VIP and, and anyone who invests in the most popular holdings, is, is it's like the worst way to do it. You're just getting a crowded hedge fund basket. That's a, it back tests horribly. Just market cap based? No, they, they like, they invest in the stocks that the most hedge funds own. That's a horrible way to do it. Anyway. So the second way you can replicate a hedge fund is like what they call factor based. So you'll look at the return stream of the hedge fund index. And there used to be a ton of papers out there and replicate that return stream. Problem with that is you don't want the betas of hedge funds. That just gives you like a 60, 40 portfolio leveraged. Like it's not interesting whatsoever. And then the last way to do it, which I think is the most interesting, or I, I like the 13F if done correctly. The last way to do it, which is the most interesting and, and accurate, is rules-based. So for a lot of the strategies, and Bridgewater used to write a ton on this, and we, we used to publish on the blog. And so like managed futures, for example, former hedge fund alpha strategy that only a few people did, that's now fairly simple, a lot of people do it different ways, but most of them do it trend following in generally the same. So you could write down some rules and replicate that strategy with high correlation. There was a book on this called by Andre Clenal. Clenal? I always murder his name. Sorry, Andre. And I, I'm blanking on the book. Anyway, he replicates a lot of the famous managed futures managers. And he comes with a very high correlation. We have to get him on the podcast, by the way. And so, but you could replicate long short equity. You could replicate certainly like convertible ARB, merger ARB. That's a really easy rules based portfolio. Some you can't. I mean, short, you just short the SP or short the Russell. That's essentially what you get. So there, there's a handful of, but the problem again with all of these, it's fine if you're teasing out the beta. So managed futures beta, I think, is great. But, but a lot of these others, it's not like it's something you want to pay five basis points for. And so that's, I mean, if you look at the hedge fund indexes, this is one of the first articles I ever wrote, got published in a European, I think it was in London magazine about the hedge fund replication indices. And the ones that you couldn't invest in were already mediocre. The ones that actually were investable were four percentage points worse than the broad ones. So the indexes have been pretty poor 
I, I think managed futures have actually been a, a standout. B top 50 is, is kind of one of the famous ones. Was this another situation though, where you would basically say, look, I mean, you're splitting hairs. The average investor listening to this should not be wasting their time trying to worry about uh, hedge fund replication strategies. You know, as you pointed out 20, 30 minutes ago, you know, you really shouldn't be trying to, if you're spending more than whatever the hell you said, 10 minutes a week, a month, you're spending too much time in your portfolio. The beauty of the hedge fund replication strategies is at least you're not paying two and 20. So now you're maybe paying 50 basis points, if anything. So yeah, you could replicate private equity and venture capital by investing in a simple quant screen that does small cap value that's a little bit leveraged or you invest in small cap value leveraged companies. There's a lot of academic papers on that. So for example, so you don't have to be Yale, you could just do small cap value, but concentrated and certainly in really small cap stuff. So yeah, I mean, rules-based, if you still think you can pick the perfect great managers, have at it. Wonderful. That's awesome. But I think the rules-based in some cases is useful. In some cases, yeah, just move on. But but a lot of the stuff that is now what people call smart beta, there's this evolution from alpha to whatever you want to call it, alternative systematic beta to just beta. You know, so at one point all of these things may have been considered pure alpha two and twenty, but they got commoditized over the years and now for the most part are things that trade for half a percent or less. All right. Well, we are out of questions. Anything you want to uh, add on this one? No. As always, I'd say tell people Jeff's running out of Q&A. Some of you guys just keep asking the same stuff. So the weirder, the higher chance it has of getting on the show, the, the more esoteric and unique, specific, personal in Jeff's case. Anything that you guys want to ask, shoot us an email, feedback at themedfavorshow.com. Is that it? That's it. Listeners, thanks for taking the time to tune in. You can always find show notes and other episodes at mebfavor.com forward slash podcast. Subscribe to show on iTunes. We've now passed 200 reviews. Thank you. We read all of them and appreciate it. Thanks for listening, friends. Good investing. Good investing.